morning, and uh, glad that uh, you're here with us, and uh, hello to you guys, our family and friends online as well. I'm Jonathan, I'm the small groups pastor, and we are in week two of a new series called Gospel Resilience, and Pastor Henry set up our series in this way last week, put it on the screen for you. This series is about resilient faith in the face of cultural headwinds but also so much more. It's about resilient faith in the face of suffering, in doubts, in deep disappointment with Christians or the church, in temptation, in misplaced self-confidence or religiosity, in persecution and under satanic attack. In this series, we're going to be going through Romans chapter 5 through 8, and this is all about having a resilient faith, withstands the evil one, and actually strengthen us in suffering and overcome our worries and temptations. And I think the stakes of not having a resilient faith are, are laid out even uh, really well by uh, N.T. Wright, theologian. And he says this, that the purpose of the church's life is to be the people of God for the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. But the church can only be this if she is constantly being recalled to the story and message of Scripture, without which she will herself lapse into the world's ways of thinking. So today we're going to be looking at how Paul sees the origin of sin, the triumph over evil, and the destiny of all people as essential parts of the gospel story, and I'd argue central to holding a resilient, meaningful faith in Jesus. And because understanding the Bible and our purpose in life, it doesn't have to be a mystery. That's why at Five Oaks, each week together, we're going to open our Bibles. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles uh, right now uh, to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat racks in front of you. We'll be on page 1130. And if you're on your device, either here or at, at home, we invite you to just, uh, that's the NIV translation that we'll be using. Uh, but first, uh, before we jump into the scripture, we need to pray because you're here to encounter God. You're he- here to have God move in your heart, in your life, and we need him to illuminate his word, to change our heart and to transform our minds. And so, will you pray with me? This first part of this prayer is based off 1 Corinthians 15. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth and the power of your word. Thank you for the hope we find as your plan for our redemption is revealed. You sent your Son to save us and your Holy Spirit to guide and equip us. As we look to your word, open our hearts to the work of your Spirit. Teach us and lead us to reflect your love and your saving grace to the world around us. Father, we are thankful for all the the lives that were changed and transformed through the FCA camp we just saw. We're also thankful for the opportunity to have hosted students in the Apex Missions trip in our church this past week and how they got a brand new vision and your work in their life and how they're on mission in this community. And we also pray for the upcoming trip this week for the students that will be on that that we're hosting from our church Um, that you'd be working in their hearts even right now, preparing them for the great work you're going to do in their life this week. And Father, we give of this time to you. It's your time. Use it as you would. 
Transform us by your word and your Holy Spirit here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we go to the scripture video that will be read from someone from our congregation, I encourage you to read along with them as they read the scriptures. Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, well, let's just get the obvious out in the open. This is some very dense bread. There's a lot happening here, trying to figure it out. And, and by way of helping us do this, I'm going to kind of pull us in a different direction and give us a quick story. And uh, there were these two Australian guys, and they were out on the town one night. And as the night progressed, they had had uh, too much to drink. And they're walking around, and now they figure out that they are lost, and they have no idea uh, where they are. And they're, they're bumping into each other, and they find this guy, uh, this, this Navy man, and they bump him into him and go, do you know where we are? And the Navy man, kind of disturbed in his uniform, kind of goes like this and brushes himself off and shines his medals and goes, do you know who I am? And two guys look at each other and are like, oh man, now we're really in trouble. We don't know where we are, and he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> so anyway, I, I think uh, to, Paul is trying to do something for the church in Rome here. He's saying, okay, let's stay out of trouble here. Let's remember a couple things. Here's where you came from. Here's who you really are. And here's where you're going. That's what he's trying to do here. And for us to be resilient followers of Christ, we have to have understanding of these particular points in how, as we think about these things, this impacts how we look at and treat other people. So the first thing we need to understand to be resilient is sin is a deadly infection. Sin is a deadly infection. 
and I'm going to do this a couple times this morning, read from the message translation to help enter in kind of the story portion of this dense bread. So I'm going to read just the first couple of verses here, 12 through 14. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in? First sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God and everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. So Adam released a sin and death infection on humanity. And before you go, you're like, Come on, Adam, way to screw it up for all of us. Or, that's not fair, why does sin and death have to reign over me? Because of Adam's screw up. Well, let's think about it, and this is one way that's been helpful for me to think about it. God created Adam, and he was righteous, and in good relationship with God. And if God knows what he's doing, because of course he does, Adam is probably the best of us, the first and best human to start us off. And it's safe to assume that everyone, and I mean you, me, and everyone, would have failed in the exact same way or worse. I think that's what verse 12 was getting at. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in the, this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, Paul's not just saying death came because all have sinned in their life, which of course we have. Paul might be saying, in getting at a singular sin, the sin of Adam, in which we all sinned, in Adam. As you're, if you're writing in your notes right now, you can put a little asterisk next to that, that one, asterisk, and then right next to it, write, read scripture in community. Read scripture in community community. I think this is an important side point here is um, as I was looking at this particular passage, I'm trying to take this high level point and try to not get into any of the like metaphysical or mechanical aspects of how this all plays out in real life. And uh, I inadvertently did that with this particular line. And I think this actually can be a helpful way for us to look at it, but it's not the only way to look at this particular passage. There's really probably five or six different ways historically in the church to look at this particular verse. And it's a very tricky one when you get into the original languages and et cetera. But um, as I was talking with our pastoral resident, Pastor Danny, this week, he shared with me this really helpful quote that I think is, is helpful for us to hear this morning. And it's from the dictionary of Paul and his letters. And the authors write this. It's important to note that while Paul does turn to Adam as the means by whereby sin enters the world, he does not tell us the means whereby that sin is transmitted from one generation to another. The mechanics are left unexplained beyond the simple declaration that all humankind sinned, a more correct rendering of Romans 5.12. 
Adam's responsibility for the origin of sin's introduction into the world is affirmed by Paul alongside an affirmation of the individual's responsibility for the presence of sin in his or her life. For Paul, both elements, personal guilt and responsibility, as well as universal guilt and sin in Adam, are active. And I think if you want to write something else in your notes right under this, the, um, the EFCA statement of faith, it's not a very large thing, it's essentials. They put it very succinctly in this way. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. Human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. And this originally was on my cutting room floor, but I added it back in because I think it puts some handlebars on this because as these kind of sin- sinners by nature kind of thinking uh, always does, these conversations then start to revolve around children and what that means for them if they are sinners by nature. What ha- you know, like what happens if a baby dies? A baby, an infant, obviously doesn't sin, but if sin causes death, we see that very clearly. Sin causes death, and babies don't sin. Why do babies die? Well, there's p- part of the answer here if you look in 13 and 14. Um, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. But you're thinking, oh, I remember back. You know, a couple months ago, we're in Romans 2, there's people without law, and if you want to turn back, you can, 2, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witnesses, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times defending them. Now, you could reflect on those things for a little bit, but I think there's another verse I want to just bring in. You can turn back to John chapter 9, the words of Jesus here, verse 41, talking to the Pharisees. He says this, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. We go to a lot more verses here, but I think here's where I want to go with this, is that God's grace, mercy, and love reign supreme across all of these particular verses. And to um, make it more personal, my, my wife Stephanie, our first pregnancy ended in miscarriage. And I know that's a story for many of you. And I know others that have lost infant children or in childbirth. And I've met with those that have abortion in their history. And I'm convinced from how God reveals himself in Scripture that these children are with Jesus. That God's grace is so much more than the sin and death released into our world. And we're going to get to that in our second point. Okay, now I want to get back to our infection analogy again. The Heath brothers, uh, who write books on leadership, wrote a book on change, and they were discussing this story of a hospital 
and this is what they wrote. A doctor in the hospital, Dr. Bender, became frustrated when he took a cruise and observed that the cruise crew was more diligent about hand washing than the staff at his own hospital. He knew that frequent hand washing by doctors and nurses is one of the best ways to prevent patient infections. And studies estimate that thousands of patients die every year from preventable bacterial infections. Bender and his colleagues tried a variety of techniques to encourage hand washing, but the staff's compliance with regulations was stuck around 80%. Medical standards require a minimum of 90% in his hospital was due for an infection or a, um, an inspection. Maybe an infection, 80%. They had to do better. Uh, one day, a committee of 20 doctors and administrators were taken by surprise when after lunch, the hospital's epidemiologist asked them to press their hands into an agar plate, uh, a sterile petri dish containing a growth medium. The agar plates were sent to the lab to be cultured and photographed. The photos revealed what wasn't visible to the naked eye, of course. The doctor's hands were covered with gobs of bacteria. Imagine being one of those doctors and realizing that your own hands, the same hands that would examine a patient later today, not to mention the same hands that you just used to eat a turkey wrap, were harboring an army of microorganisms. It was revolting. One of the worst images in the portfolio was made into a screensaver for the hospital's network of computers ensuring that everyone on staff could share in the horror. Suddenly, hand hygiene compliance rose to nearly 100% and stayed there. The Heath brothers basically concluded that in most cases, we won't change our behavior until we see and feel how we contribute to the problems in our world and our relationships. We have to see that we sin and we contribute to the rippling problem of sin in our world and in our relationships so that we can see the need for change in ourselves. And as we do this, we, we see more clearly a few things. That like Adam, we throw away the eternal and the beautiful for the temporal and, the, and control. It's, it's like we're looking at our iPhones when coming face-to-face -face with the Grand Canyon. You see, so it's, it's important for us to see ourselves that we want to be our own gods. If you've not thought about it in that way, if you just reflect on it, that is kind of how we will operate. We want to be our own gods. And it's important that we see ourselves as Adam in this story that we took part in starting the infection of sin and death and we've continued to spread its havoc because it will help us see more clearly what it means to have God be God and have the new Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, as the new Adam we want to be and that he cures the infection. And remember, it's a, dead, it's a deadly infection. It may appear that some have more infection than others, but it all still kills and you and I don't have any leg to stand on but Jesus. So here's just like a, some practical things on this. If, if you've placed your faith in Christ, please stop expecting people around you to make biblical decisions if they haven't given their life to Jesus. Don't expect it. 
Or on the other side, stop thinking that you would have made more biblical decisions than other people if you didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You wouldn't. I mean, here's, here's the bottom line. When it comes to people in your life who don't know God, tell them what Jesus did, not what they have to do. Tell them what Jesus did, not what they have to do. And then after they're following Jesus, we can show them Jesus called them to do this, and now they're empowered to actually do it by the work of the Holy Spirit. Because at the end of the day, we have to remember this, that Jesus has done all the work. It's Jesus. Jesus has done all the work. Let's get back to verse 15 here. Again, I'm going to give it to you in the message translation. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin puts crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, absolute life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man Jesus Christ provides? I love that. This grand setting everything right that the one man Jesus Christ provides. Jesus has done all the work. It is finished. We just need to grasp with both hands this extravagant life gift. You see, in this context, there were a lot of Gentiles, uh, which are non-Jewish people, in the Roman church. And a lot of Jews were bringing about their gospel plus add-ons. Like, well, it's the gospel. Okay, plus this and, and plus this. And you got to do this too when it comes to being made right with God. And there's only Jesus. He's done it all. And this work, this grace, this magnificent life-giving gift he's provided, it's more amazing than the power of sin and death in all of it. In all of it. I don't know about you, but when I've looked at the history of sin in my own life, the sin in our world right now, and death, and the history of our world, I'm like, oh my goodness, it is like tremendous and awful and horrible. But Paul's saying here that Jesus' life, resurrection, and gift triumphs over all of it. It's way more, it's much more than how big you think this is. Turn to a couple of verses here, verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace in the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus? Skip down to 17. For if by the trespass of that one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign through Jesus? And finally, verse 20 halfway through, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. 
I mean, this, this is incredible. All the sin and death reigning over the earth, but how much more amazing and powerful is Jesus' grace, gift, and life to people. I think when we see that our life um, is broken, as a part of this broken world, we know from Scripture that all our work, all our striving and efforts will never be enough to put us right with God. And that's where this saving faith comes in, this precious gift. Do you want to be a part of Adam's humanity or do you want to be a part of Jesus's? John Stott, an author and theologian, he puts this idea this way. So then, whether we are condemned or justified, whether we are spiritually alive or dead, depends on which humanity we belong to whether we still belong to the old humanity initiated by Adam or to the new humanity initiated by Christ. And what's even better than this is that Adam was righteous and had the possibility of becoming unrighteous, which happened. The new Adam, Jesus, our new representative on our behalf, is righteous and has no possibility of becoming unrighteous. No possibility. And he gives us this righteousness. His. He gives it to us. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through Jesus? There's another uh, early American New Testament scholar. He puts this this way, uh, J. Gresham Mackin. Those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ not only are righteous in the sight of God, but they are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous because Jesus gives us his righteousness, which is perfect, and that's how the Father sees us. See, Paul in this passage keeps coming back to this whole idea, and we see that through a lot of Paul's writings, this Jew-Gentile undercurrent. It's as if he's saying, you keep going back to the law. You can, you can keep adding, go back to the law, you keep adding this stuff, but then you're one with Adam. And how's that going to work out for you? See, when we see Jesus has done all the work, I think sometimes we just need to sit quietly at least for me, and just thank Jesus for what he did for me. That no matter what happens to you, no matter what's going on in your life right now, if you've given your life to Jesus, he saved you and you are his forever. I mean, just sit for a second right now and just go, I'm his forever. Because if we will just live in the work of Christ, we will live for the work of Christ. So, we need to see ourselves in the first Adam, this sin infection, so we can bask in the amazing gift of being part of humanity in the second Adam that Jesus provides. He's done all the work. And three, we need to see that we live in a world without end. We live in a world without end. And I'll share what I mean by that. 
Okay, I'm going to share verses 20 and 21, again from the message translation. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers, but sin, sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. It's an amazing set of scriptures. In his book, On the Road with St. Augustine, James K.A. Smith describes this moment that he had when he and his daughter were in Milan and visiting the Basilica di Sant'Ambrosio. And it's a church dating back to the fourth century. And upon entering this church, uh, Jamie Smith, he says this, the scene is jarring to modern sensibilities. Through a compressed entrance, you descend into a squat space like a Gothic cave. At first, you see a few rows of small pews, but once you're inside, you see it. The pews are facing what looks like a macabre aquarium, a glass wall behind which are three skeletons with ghoulish grins. Now, I'm going to put this image up on the screen there. You can see these three skeletons he speaks of are of three saints, one of them Ambrose, who commissioned the building of this particular church, this basilica, and which at the time held the remains of two other skeletons, martyrs of the Roman Empire, as the basilica was formerly known, actually, as Basilica Martyrum. And Jamie uh, goes on to write, and as I read this, I just encourage you to just look at the image while I share the rest of this story. My visit to this crypt made a special impression on me because I shared the journey with my daughter. Both mesmerized, we sat quietly together on one of the pews, not exactly sure what to do, but held there somehow by a weight that was not sad, yet was tinged with an eerie eternality. It can be a somber experience, parent and child, facing death together. Worries and fears well up unbidden. A future we try to forget about of departure and rupture, loss and being left behind, roars into the present. But these fears were swallowed up by something bigger, by an uncanny sense of connection with these bones, these brothers. We were no longer parent and child, we were sister and brother on the field leveled by death, but also haunted by the resurrection. Though we had descended to get here, we were being invited by these brothers to some place higher, some place else, into a time beyond time where they were already alive in God. And all of us, even we in our still breathing bodies, we are all waiting with the same hope of resurrection. So when I glanced and saw the tears in my daughter's eyes, I knew they weren't tears of lamenting a loss, but the tears of one overwhelmed to be part of such cosmic fellowship that faces the fear of death with eyes wide open. 
when we have the world without end, this time beyond time perspective, we engage with our world, the people around us, and even ourselves very differently. And what God is doing is highlighting this passage goes way beyond our individual salvation, but the coming of a kingdom, an eternal one, one where God puts things right and back together again. And Paul is inviting us into this perspective so we can submit ourselves to the humanity that is in Christ and invite others to do the same. When we see the eternity forever and the gift that leads to it, that Jesus has done all the work, it puts in our minds and our hearts that we just, we just need to put our faith fully in Jesus Christ in all moments and the work of the Spirit in our life in submission to the will of the Father more and more and more forever. Just more and more. That's it. Because faith is this active, continual consent of my will to the Father's. Not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. More and more, over and over. Because I know he puts things right and back together again. And if we want a resilient faith, and we want an eternal perspective and more of our life, we need to make it a priority to live in God's story every single day, in the scriptures every single day. It's what I quoted earlier from N.T. Wright about the stakes. He said this, the purpose of the church's life is to be the people of God for the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. But the church can only be this if she's constantly being recalled to the story and message of Scripture, without what she will herself lapse into the world's ways of thinking. So Jesus has done this incredible work with his righteous life, his making us right on the cross, his giving us new life in his resurrection. And each week we celebrate his sacrifice when we celebrate communion. But before we go there, if if you've not received this gift of eternal life, this gift of Jesus' perfect righteousness put in your life, I want to invite you to do that today whether you're here or online, I want to invite you to give your life to Christ. You are a new creation. Admit that you're not right and you contribute to the problem of sin in our world and you're a sinner and you need Jesus. And if you do that, God comes to live inside you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And we celebrate with you today if you do that. So for those who follow Christ, those who maybe even newly put their faith in Christ today, I invite you to take of the elements. First the bread, Christ's body broken for you. And then the cup. Christ's blood shed for you. Let's pray. Father, you are so, so good. Thank you for what you've done through Jesus.
I know I don't think I'll ever grasp the immense, eternal, everlasting love that you have for me. But God, by your Holy Spirit, would you continually transform my heart to sense it on every level, not just the mental level, the emotional heart level. Change me so I can love this world. Change all of us. Jesus, help us see how much you love us and out of that, love this broken world all around us including this broken family you've invited us into. But in your sight, you've made us right by giving us Jesus' righteousness. Thank you for that. So much. Jesus, we just love you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.